Shout out Stormzy on this one, vegan shut up. Too many people chatting shit about being a vegan. Yo, yo, man try to say you gotta eat meat. Tell my man shut up. Anti-vegan tweets. Hey, rude boy, shut, shut up. up. Wanna say I'm weak? Shut up. Best in the scene, yo. yo. Hi everyone, Robbie here from Palm Base News and welcome to the PBM podcast. My great pleasure to introduce our guest today, Mr. Jay Brave. He's an entrepreneur, an empath, an activist, some say a, a professional vegan. He's also a rapper, a man of many talents. Welcome, Jay. Hello, everybody. Thank you for the very eloquent introduction there, Robbie. Thank you. Yeah, th- yeah thanks for coming, coming on. Um, so you are involved in lots of many, lots of different things in life. Um, mm-hmm. We've spoken about your very many passions. Obviously, plant-based news, uh, our focus is plant-based living and veganism, but it does tap in and intersect with other parts of our lives. Could you just begin by just telling us your vegan story before we, before we venture into, into the unknown? <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, sure. Well, again, yeah, I'd just like to say, like, hi to everybody. Thanks for listening in. Uh, so my vegan journey actually began in my mind <laughs> probably uh, five years because I believe uh, something that I've come to understand more so now that going vegan, similar to any, like, you know, massive behavioral change in you have in your life, isn't something you just snap your fingers and do overnight. It really takes uh, the, the mental work to prepare yourself to be able to stick to something uh, and, in essence, to as well become party to your own confirmation bias in your, in your new life. So about five years ago, I started looking into it and I started saying to people, I really want to be vegan by the time I'm this age. I really want to be, as we're saying it a lot, and it's testing the waters with saying it with people. And my people were like, you know, I wasn't really getting like that great a response from my male friends. But then in the last two years, I've been vegan for coming up to just under two years now. Uh, it was actually using, going to the gym, doing a lot of sports, playing badminton squash, that I was noticing that my recovery time was, was really long. And I talked to my personal trainer uh, about the, the, even the whey protein that I was purchasing in New and he was, and he admitted to me that you will never get that vascular look you want in your arms and body while you're using the whey protein. And I was like, why is that? And he was like, well, it kind of, especially for like you know somebody like yourself, somebody of African Caribbean heritage, he goes, these the the, the lactose, the milk in that is just going to keep your uh, your body a little bit bloated. Like you'll you'll get size, you'll get mass, but you won't get that cut that you want. And so that made me interested that my trainer would make that frank admission, even though it's something that he sells like you know on mass to everybody who comes, even though we kind of have these these goals as to why we go to the gym and in essence we're having something that kind of makes sure that you never quite reach the goal so I, so I thought I'll go home look into it a little bit myself uh, and then yeah I mean it was the beginning of my own rabbit hole uh, and see I think this is also something just to, to mention that when you start the journey into discovery of the veganism or sustainability or the environment or animal agriculture whichever angle you want to go in if you make that journey in yourself it is very likely to stick this is often when people push you to it that you then kind of feel that you don't want to drink from the from the reservoir but when i went home and started looking myself it was my own autonomy which in essence guided me i did the research looked into it ended up getting some pea protein uh, for the gym and so i mean yeah to fast forward the story the pea protein 
worked far better with me. My recovery time was better. And so from an aesthetic point of view, straight away, I recognized that this, yeah, as a life hacker, this has already made my life so much better. Where can this go? And then I kind of followed it up and carried on first with like, you know, different meal replacements. Uh, luckily as well, my partner, Iris, she was a vegan uh, uh, probably about a month or so before me, but so been started working with vegan recipes at home. Uh, and so I started eating the food and then, yeah, it all kind of just coalesced and came together very naturally. And I've been, yeah, very happily vegan now for just under, yeah, two years, 23 months. Amazing. Yeah, I've um, kind of when I first explored the whole uh, area of veganism, I felt like I was Neo in the Matrix being offered the red pill or the blue pill. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I often say, you know, you take the red pill and you come up, uh, you know, with it, it come up close to the truth. And it's a sort of realization you wake up in this world where everything suddenly seems a lot more darker about when it comes to the way animals are treated and also our health as well. You kind of, you have a realization. And obviously there's the blue pill as well, which is in, a, in essence denial, which is about saying, you know what, I've absorbed this information, but I choose to ignore it, which I think a lot of people do do. They, they come up with all this information on Facebook or on YouTube or that a friend tells them or a family member tells them. And some people are overwhelmed by it and almost sort of turn away. But when everyone gets involved in veganism, they um, they try to find something to express their passion for it. And for you, it seems to have been through your music. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you have expressed your your passion for veganism and your and your your feeling for the movement within your music? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, like you said at the introduction, I'm a, a man of many bows. Interestingly, as uh, an artist, as a as a as a, a front artist with the music, it was actually something that I hadn't really ventured since like my my teens. And so, uh, I, what I'd recognised was as somebody who is adept at, uh, at marketing, uh, guerrilla marketing strategies, and kind of getting uh, information into the public domain on a shoestring budget. I recognised that. Uh, by creating something that not only contained like humor, but also contained like the, the social currency of a modern relevance by putting together, yet again, I'm kind of talking here about, to people who don't know, I have made a parody of Stormzy's Shut Up, which is called Vegan Shut Up. Now I released that last year on World Vegan Day, November the 1st. And with thanks to yourself, Robbie, and the guys at Plant Based News, with thanks to the guys that Live Kindly and my own channel, between us, I think uh, we reached over 1.6 million views within the first uh, six weeks. Yeah, it was brilliant. So yeah, I mean, we did really, really well. But yeah, just to kind of pull back on that, as I was saying that it was actually my first foray into making music uh, in the, for the public for the public domain. Again, I should stress because I've been writing and making music at home, but uh, with life being what it is, and like you know, keeping a roof over one's head and like food. Um, it's it didn't I, I, it never materialized the dream that I could that I could chase uh, and yeah kind of like meet all of like life's overheads but at this juncture when I made the song it was yes it was a culmination of me wanting to share my 
newfound veganism, but also I'm someone who I enjoy taking the mick out of people in life. I give people a bit of ribbing, a hard time, uh, especially if people venture something new, like they're going to move somewhere new, they find a new partner, they change their hair color. I'll be the first person there to kind of like, you know, test their metal and see whether or not they're really, like, you know, they're really sure of, of, of themselves and their idea. So as you can imagine, when I kind of announced to friends and family in the world that I was going vegan, people literally had like <laughs> Bible thick like <laughs> like uh, text worth of, of jokes and banter to throw my way about being <laughs> I literally thought I'd heard everything, but then someone would then like send me through a new meme, uh, and it would be. Uh, and but the thing, the thing is though, I, I I really truly try not to be a hypocrite, and it, most of it did tickle me because it's the kind of thing that I would have done. But what I did was I chose in that moment to uh, again one of my favourite sayings about turning uh, obstacles into opportunities. Mm-hmm. I thought I can kind of either like go down this and become the, the angry sanctimonious vegan who everyone kind of pokes fingers at me and I just kind of like growl back at them like, or, or I can use all of this material that everyone's given me of all of their critique of veganism and turn that into lyrics fit those lyrics to somebody else's flow put that on a song and then boom put it out into the public domain and yeah it uh, it was a perfect storm it was all the everything kind of came together for that and yeah, so the Vegan Shut Up song was first born, which I actually ended performed actually as long ago as April at Vevolution, uh, April 2017, but then released with a music video on November the 1st. And since then, it's kind of been going crazy. I'm still performing it like every weekend to, at new vegan festivals. And there's a whole raft of people who haven't heard it. And so, yeah, to kind of answer your first question and how this kind of all pertains, it is great that having something which is humorous, which is musical, which is fun, that allows for people to... I like have a tactile experience with me and my veganism, something that I can share on the road as well as the kind of more uh, serious like talks and stuff too. Amazing. With with regards your first step into veganism and people's reactions, I just want to talk a bit about masculinity and maleness and gender and how we have a major disparity between the number of men that are vegan and the number of women that are vegan because on our platform on plant-based news we get hundreds of thousands of people via our various various channels each week and some 80 to 85 percent of them are women now why do you think it is that it seems much harder for men to get on board with a vegan the idea of being vegan uh, what you said there is, uh, again, not very, it's, it's nigh on correct. I mean, I look at my own uh, online following uh, uh, across all platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the majority of my following is also uh, women. And now, I mean, I would like to sometimes think, like, you know, it's because of my, uh, like, achingly good looks. Uh, <laughs> it helps, uh, like, it helps. Charisma and charm, but... I'm, I'm more led to believe it's because the, the, the path and the agenda that I have kind of chosen to, to follow in life is one very much based on like my, the words there on my, on my website, an activist and an empath. And the key to empathy is obviously compassion because you kind of have to be on a level with other people. Now, in my formal education through life, I mean, I've gone to, a, I've, I've been at, at boys' schools quite a lot uh, and in elite educational uh, environments where men or, or boys are, are very much pushed to not even see your other male colleagues as friends but as friendly competition uh-huh. uh, 
And this is something which is geared up from a very young age. It is, it is pathologized into us from sports day, from everything that the competition to be more apex as a man. And that, that, and that, that measure of being apex in a man is the ability to, to devastate. I mean, in essence, like, yeah, to break collateral, but with the least breaking of sweat, in essence, is what you're taught in elite education as a man. To be on top of the pyramid, expend as little, like, yeah, uh, work for a maximum output. uh, and and so I think that then permeates down. Even if you, even if you don't go to a, a public school or a grammar school, that mentality permeates throughout our societies because, in essence, the people who become the decision makers in our societies are those guys. They are the boys that I went to school with, the boys that I went to college and university with. And society, again, is already constructed to support and give accolades to to, to to those behaviors because it is very strange that I mean I wrote recently uh, a piece about masculinity but the dissonance that we are expected to, to, to live in that we tell people that crime and violence is bad while we weaponize our enemies while literally we go I mean I'm not sure if you heard yesterday I mean I think it was this morning even uh, one of the interviewers on Fox News had to ask President Donald Trump so Kim Jong-un who you're shaking hands with and like you know he's now you're saying he's a great guy he kills tens of thousands of his own people and the, and the and the pithy response really from Donald Trump was he was put in a tough situation when he was young like, I mean he's a tough guy he, he he made it work like I mean what what do you want from him I think that's actually a very smart guy who did that and so, I mean, again, I mean, I'm not even paraphrasing. I mean, I wish I was paraphrasing. I wish I was like, I wish I, exactly. I wish I was like, you know, colloquializing like the, 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 the talk of the president, but I'm not. I'm actually probably like, you know, giving him better words than he used in that mm-hmm. same situation. But the, the, the takeaway from that is that is the message that is now coming down from on high. Because although we may not have respect for the individual who holds the office, the office is still the office known as like, you know, the office of the leader of the free world. Mm-hmm. And it still has the connotations and everything that comes with that. And people can't undial everything that that comes with that. And so we're now seeing as well a, a society which is becoming more and more violent, more and more racist, more and more because it has been, in essence, allowed like uh, from from the top level and so again to draw that back to about why uh, men are not maybe like taking up the call to to veganism is because men from on high are are seeing life as a zero-sum game that for for men to win other people have to lose women have to be inferior like people from different uh, ethnic backgrounds people with disabilities people who uh, are of different uh, sexual persuasion or different gender persuasion anything that feels like less than heteronormative Uh is is a threat and so in very much the same way that behaviors that I remember from my childhood uh, growing up of the moment that you do something that is not seen as macho that you're laughed at as that's gay mm-hmm. and then that 
then spins out into your later life as how will you now ever think that like that gay is anything other than something to be ridiculed and to laugh mm-hmm. at but then the tenets of what made it gay at the time was because it had a proximity to femininity and so that also means that femininity is something that you have to mock right and right so, and so what happens is it, it, it like i mean again i don't want to like come on here in any way and be like you know like poor guys guys are the victim but in many ways like guys are there is a there is a bravado that they have to live up to that not many guys actually want to and they don't really have the the tools necessary to even live up to it when these like uh, this pastiche of masculinity was created it was in a time when like when when wars were fought on battlefields when like men actually had to do stuff yeah now like you know like the richest and most successful men in the world who people look up to have done everything from like tapping away a keyboard and learning code. Like, I mean, you don't need to be like uh, like a, a muscle bound Adonis. You don't you don't need to lift the trees yourself. We've invented machines to do all those things, and so the like the, the needs to be these, I suppose, physical alpha males. Uh, uh, but at the same time, because of the aesthetic nature of our society, and the like, yeah, the way that the the, the media pushes the idea of those uh, aesthetic ideals, it it, it remains. Uh, an idol a pedestal that that men actually uh, aspire to they want to be the strongest guy they want to throw down the biggest steak at the barbecue and so it's really difficult to unpick some of these things because they go back all the way to when you're a baby when you're a child it's a perfect storm isn't it it's a perfect storm of of conditioning and social programming and expectation um just to touch on the point of uh homophobia that you brought up homophobia on the surface may f- seem like a isolated kind of um prejudice that kind of is born out of men's fear of being described or seen as feminine or, or that femininity or yeah femininity equals weakness when in mm-hmm. fact actually what it is is men's fear of the feminine so and men's attitudes towards or society's attitudes towards women because homophobia comes from society's attitudes towards women because for a man to be anything like a woman is considered degrading for a man to be in the position of a woman is considered degrading because of how mm-hmm. society views women as less than or you know not not equal obviously it, it has changed a lot over the last you know 100 years or you know the last 50 60 years you could say in in the, in, in the UK and in the USA but there's still a lot of work to be done because there is still an intrinsic kind of sexism that runs through the fabric of society of how men view women and how they treat women um, obviously that that doesn't go for all men it's it's uh, not a sweeping statement but it is there under the surface and it exhibits itself in things like homophobia where people or men specifically obviously um have a fear of being feminine because they don't want to be seen as being anything like a woman because of that view does that make sense totally well i mean it's interesting you should say that because iris my partner and myself we were talking about sometimes the crystallization of these pathologies into uh children from a young age because uh iris's experience uh, has she's been a nanny for a lot of uh, big families in in the uk like she's from the netherlands and she came here uh seven eight years ago first came to the UK as a nanny so she's worked with a lot of families a lot of uh, a lot of children and obviously so she's picked up a lot of uh, like behavioral traits that we witnessed but more recently she was pointing out the fact that for the majority of children especially young boys their primary caregivers are 
all going to be women. And so they already get used to the idea of service from women from a very young age. Now, this mm-hmm. is kind of inescapable. Your mum is your primary caregiver, but then your primary school teachers and then the people who end up showing you like the, 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 the empathetic approach to life, the, the coochie coos and the, the high voices and the hugs and the holds are, are, are women. Mm-hmm. And more recently as well, I was pointed out that people now have these Google assistants and Alexas and stuff in their house, which invariably are women's voices. Now, with these women's voices that are in your house that you order, now remember, because they are machines, people do not feel necessarily that they have to provide the, the etiquette that they would to another human. So if I was to ask you, say, Robbie, if I was at your house, can I have a drink? I'd be like, Rob, can I get a glass of water, please? And I would put the necessary etiquette to make it like a, a reasonable request that mm-hmm. you would maybe want to honor because of how I asked. Yeah. Now with a machine, you can just be like, Alexa, weather, Alexa, this, Alexa, and you can just bark an order mm-hmm. and it would do it. Now, what Iris was pointing out to me is that she's seen in children now, they now expect that same level of service with women's voice that they've heard from the machine with women in real life. Wow. Because it's a, it's just, because this is how pathologies are created. Yeah. And you know, no, the child at two, three, four, however many years old isn't thinking. Uh, they just know that at home, when I say, Alexa, play Bar Bar Black Sheep, Alexa does it. And so now when you go to nursery and you're like, teacher, do this, and they don't do it, like all of a sudden the problem is now like, oh, like, you know, little Johnny or little so-and-so is upset because of, and this is what I mean. We don't recognize the insidious ways in which we actually crystallize uh, the, the, the prejudices that already exist. And we're going to be bringing them forward into technology. But it's all unconscious though, isn't it? Like I don't, I don't think that it's a conscious decision to use a female voice for technology, but I think it's an unconscious decision, yeah. isn't it? Uh, no, I don't agree. I don't agree. I I believe that these things are done consciously. Like, yeah. I, I believe like that the, 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 those that those that are in power, or the, the famous Voltaire quote, uh, mm-hmm. as used by verbal Quint, Kint, Kaiser Sose in yeah. uh, the Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing us that he no longer existed, <laughs> and that is my, my worry when people go, "Oh, but this is unconsciously happening." No. Don't believe that. that, that but how that, can oh, we know is, that? How can we know whether something is a consciously chosen um, strategy? Yeah, well, 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 again, all we have to do is just like you know reverse engineer it. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why do you believe that like assistants uh, that the new digital assistants have been created with a prevalence to female voices? Because yeah. in the in the existing world before that, mm-hmm. the, uh, the more PAs and more people who do assistant type roles are women, right? And so. Again, it is, and again, not because women are is this what they should do. It's only because men have decided that yes. we have the autonomy to decide, and women yeah. are going to do the admin around us. And so that has just been brought forward. And that, so, as much as people can say that, oh no, 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 it's just people love the sounds of women's voices. I'm like that at some level with the amount of people that are be involved in the creation, the R and D over the amount of years yes. it takes to create that product. Yeah. If I if I can think of this off the cuff in a conversation that I didn't research, there is no way that like I see what you're saying. and people did not consciously make these decisions. So they've decided based on the psychology of what you've described that a, a female voice would be more advantageous to the process of a machine of that sort, that it would be more um, pleasing, and but it's pleasing because of the nature of our society and the way everything works. Yes, exactly. You know, you know. I, I know, I know. As a, as a guy, that 
men can often be more impressed by who you have as your PA than like the amount of certificates you have on the wall in your office for what you've actually done. And so in essence, it's because that woman who is your PA in the eyes of some of your fellow colleagues is another one of those certificates. This is another trophy that you have. Like, and oh, wow, like you, you've got, mm, and that, that can be what gets you the job. And so until you can change that, like, you know, ideology, that belief system in men's heads. And again, that's like trying to like take milk out of tea. Yeah, it's ego, isn't it? And and to bring it back to our kind of the vegan movement, now ego plays a big role in not just obviously, obviously us as people and our decisions and how we behave on a day-to-day basis, but, you know, how we interact with each other. But I'd like to talk a bit about, you know, what you've mentioned before about how people are so quick to judge others. So, and this can be applied to veganism, to race, to gender. But if we specifically focus in on veganism, there is this tendency for people to become vegan, then they, they, Dr. Melanie Joy talks about people getting vegan amnesia, where they, they become vegan and suddenly they're a level 10 vegan and they forget that everyone else around them was just like them five minutes ago. And there comes this competition about being the best. How vegan are you? Um, and Tobias Leinhardt talks about it in his book, How to Make a Vegan World. And he says, we're already a small group of people. We're like 1% of the population, roughly. When we behave in this way, we make a small group of people even smaller. When we hold our hand up and say, sorry, you're not coming into the party because you're not vegan enough. Do you want to talk a bit about, you know, criticism and how people seem to, you know, use it? Well, I've seen people seem unaware of their own egos when it comes to becoming vegan in the first sort of phase. Of, of adopting this ideology sure uh, I mean first of all I'd say I mean yeah, yeah it's, it's so right that it, from the from the perspective of ego because this in essence is what it is we we now live very much in what has come to be known as a cancel culture where people are looking very quickly to, to, to cancel you or cancel someone based on an opinion or something you said or did and yeah, hold people to the highest uh, account based on every element of their history and digital history, while at the same time, like, you know, it, by and large, being far worse at the very things that they're holding people to account for. Uh, I mean, yeah, with regards to that, I mean, what I find quite funny is that, and and the and the, 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 the very performative nature of it all is, is that some of the people who I see give the most of that uh, vegan Olympic, I'm level ten. Uh, so often they're, they're dietary vegans like, uh, and they're very annoyed that people haven't looked into like what E number this means and did you know that that was from the shell of a beetle but when I then say to the like you know when I then ask them like you know their views on uh, African Americans being like uh, executed or Colin Kaepernick kneeling they're like total not non-understanding of, of any nuance and so I'm like well to, to, to me, and I'll put this on the record, if your veganism doesn't cover human beings, you're not vegan. Right? It doesn't. That's, that's, that's to me because... Because guess right? what? Human beings are animals too. We're also yeah. animals. We're, you <laughs> yeah, know, we yeah. just happen to be conscious in a way that's slightly different to animals, as in consciously aware of ourselves that are in a slightly different way. But other than that, you know, we're no more special than any other animal on this planet. And that's what speciesism is about. And, and I think that is the core of these conversations when people say, oh, veganism is all about animals and 
humans, excuse, excuse my French, this is where the misanthropy comes in, where you, you awaken into this world where you suddenly realize that human beings are responsible for so much suffering in this world, uh, over and above what they do to each other. And then the human hating sort of comes out and there's these you know, drum beating angry people who say, well, screw the humans, you know, we need to eradicate the, the human race from the planet um, and, and then everything will be fine. And that's, in my opinion, that's not the answer. Well, no, again, like, I think what that comes, like, <laughs> there, there are a couple of schools of veganism, but I am very much aware of the, the, there's the neoliberal vegan movement, which is basically this vegan purchasing. And it's just like, veganism is a trend, is a new business that everybody's kind of like t- attaching their, their, their wagon to that horse and just selling stuff. But again, within that, fair enough that your core product is vegan, but it's wrapped in plastic, like how are you traveling it here? Exactly. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, that the neo the neoliberal veganism is it's one thing, and at the same time, like I said, uh, there is a cancel culture out there that I don't tend to agree with because everything has its like its 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 good things and its faults as well within the neoliberal vegan movement. Sure. Like, I mean, what's happening is you're seeing the high street offer uh, vegan food in all of, like, you know, the, the places that your mum and dad would go if they were doing a London day trip. And that's great. Like, I can only say that it, it, I can only think that is great because it steps in the right direction. But then when it's a kind of question of, yeah, the fundamental veganism that I kind of believe in, probably escaping even from Duncan Watson's, like, you know, term and the Western view of it, and like maybe even looking back more to my own roots and the, my Ital family in Jamaica, people who, without like you know the big word or any kind of like media movement, were already choosing to live off of the land with food that wasn't like highly sorted and seasoned, uh, and having respect for animals and, and nature, and trying to live like in harmony with it. I mean, this is this is actually indigenous behavior to so many people in the world. And it's actually only globalization and the globalization of animal agriculture that has led people to believe this. Oh, we've always ate, like, you know, brontosaurus steaks forever. I'm like, well, <laughs> like, no, like, the, the guys at Hanna-Barbera who created, like, the Flintstones, they were also just like, it was just their imagination. Mm-hmm. There weren't no, like, cars with big stone roller wheels that Fred was running around and Brontosaurus burgers. Those things, they didn't happen. We weren't eating meat like that. For the majority of the time that we were, that, that yeah, that, that, that the, the, the human animal was... 200,000 years, yeah. Exactly. In that time, like, meat was such a small proportion. Like of it, yeah. As we know, with research, the term should actually be like gather a hunter because like the, it was a far smaller proportion of hunting than it was gathering. We didn't have the uh, tools, and we didn't have the kind of skills to to gather meat and flesh in that way. And it was opportunistic most of the time. Um, you know. So yeah, so it's very much ego. So yeah, to go just again to to to, to draw back to the. The, the, the point about people kind of like holding their veganism on high, what I've off, what I've often felt, and again, this is maybe something that polarizes some listeners, is that there is a school of vegans who their veganism comes from an overspill of privilege mm-hmm. because yeah, they're like already so their life is so privileged already that they're like, where can some of this? Where can I? Where can I put some of this overspill? And now. 
I would, I would make, and again, this is now my, I'm going to go with theory here. This is my theory. This mm-hmm. is my theory as somebody who is like, you know, politically black and has lived the black experience. And in my experience of, uh, white people trying to help black people, what happens in that situation when someone's trying to be well-meaning and do something like in that miscommunication, the, the white feelings can get hurt. And in that getting hurt, they're like, the burntness is like, I'm never coming back to this. Now, with animals, there is only nonverbal communication. Yeah. There, there is, the, the animal cannot, with nuance, explain to you why the way that you're fighting this battle for me is not what I want. Like, I would rather you did something different. Like, I would rather you did, but they can't tell you that. All they can do is look helpless and cute in photographs. Yeah. And so you can allow yourself to believe that you're doing everything that that animal wants you to do. And you can you can really tell yourself that. And looking at the pictures, and sure, looking at those, but you, you, you would be like, yes, I'm doing something great. But the animal can't answer you. It can't tell you or you're doing it in, in the wrong way. And so it means that you can overspill that privilege into something that, again, I'm not saying that it's not a great thing to do it, but it is a, a place of unburdening guilt in a way that it has no comeback, no answer. And that is what I find then, like, propels people in that space into what becomes their elite isolationist veganism because it is very much still based on prejudices of where if other people tell me stuff I don't want to hear they're gone they're mm-hmm. out they're mm-hmm. out but I love my dogs I love my cats mm-hmm. the reason why is because they never answer back to you they've got no and they've got no choice they're, in essence they have become your new slaves you, you've colonized your, these animals now right okay? yeah that is my, that, that, again maybe controversial to some but in my experience i i felt that to be very true mm-hmm. that there is a, a a breed a whole load of vegans who their veganism comes from an overspill and it's like where can i put it whereas i feel that my veganism and the veganism that i try to promote especially uh, uh, in my uh, capacity as a youth ambassador at Maiden Hackney, where I work with like, younger people and people, again, from disenfranchised communities and minority ethnic backgrounds, that the veganism that we're finding is a one of uh, autonomy and mastery of our own lives. Mm-hmm. It is actually still very much about survival in a society that we know poisons our food, poisons our water, poisons the things that they give to us because at the end of the day, we're second-class citizens. And so it's very much about reclaiming like our own lives and the autonomy to make decisions that affect us on a personal level yes. as opposed to saying to people in those environments. Again, I don't tell like, you know, like a young kid from Tower Hamlets, like go and get the new, uh, the new kombucha or go and get the new mayo at Whole Foods. I mean, it's lost on them. But what we can do is we can work on understanding how you can convert a bag of carrots with a few simple ingredients into a meal that you and your family could love. But now when you would have thought that veganism was so expensive, a bag of carrots can be as little as 50 P per kilogram. And that's far cheaper than anything that you're going to buy in any of those processed aisles. Yeah. So let's, let's talk, let's drill down to that as well. Cause you've spoken about um, empowering black youth through veganism, but you've also talked about um, black culture and we, we touched lightly on it when we, when I saw you the other day at, uh, vegan nights. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, it's a quite a big kind of topic talking about race and culture and the intersection between race and culture. I mean, what I think maybe before we explore that, I might go back a bit to talk about what you, we, we talked about the intersection between culture, race and identity. Recently, plant-based news, we, um, we put a, a, an image out onto Facebook talking about 
celebrating Pride Month. So this month of the month of June is Pride Month worldwide. LGBTQ plus people around the world are vegan as well. There's many people uh, in the movement who are LGBT. Um, and we wanted to celebrate those people. I'm a member of the LGBT community. And as a director of Plant Based News, I thought... I mean, it'd be. I think it'd be great to be able to use the platform to raise awareness of of these issues. Definitely. But, but quite interestingly, um, we put the image out. It's just just changing the profile photo with a rainbow flag. We got so much um, homophobia, bigotry, anger, hatred flying at us, um, and some of the stuff was quite shocking. And what's interesting about the idea of being vegan, you would automatically assume that by being vegan, you would understand and connect with the oppression of other humans. But that's not the case at all, (laughs) which is very interesting because obviously that intersects with race as well. Um, You would assume that if you go vegan, that you're the kind of person who wouldn't be racist, who wouldn't be sexist. You would assume that most people have that kind of liberal bubble that they sort of exist within. And this is probably, you know, a a bubble of being in in a metropolitan city. But for a lot of people this last few days who've written to me and have said, I'm so shocked and horrified that, you know, people within the vegan movement would think like like this and that's the that's the interesting idea when you take on an ideology like veganism it isn't automatically um it doesn't automatically reprogram or recondition a person to be aware of the suffering and oppression of of people of in their own species yeah i mean to be fair even as you say what you're saying there it just highlights to me again something that I also try to kind of drive home in all of the talks uh, and workshops and seminars I do, and that is very much about we live in a in a world uh, and and our our existence in this society is very much framed about what we are as opposed to who we are. Yeah, it's very much based on labels of like even the even the vegan label, like we you know which people go out and like you know I'm in the vegan and it's yeah. Uh, and again I'm party to it too because again in this world that we now live in. To, to, to gain traction even on your message and your posts as you post it you're using hashtags and those hashtags use these words that lock you into groups identity yeah yeah and and, and into identities and again I, I'm party to it because it serves a, a, a greater purpose of getting the message out but at the same time it insidiously locks you into groups it does and makes you makes you I am part of this hashtag gang I am like hashtag vegans of Instagram hashtag vegans of London and, and so we we, we we become party to it too but again what it always does is it it, it takes us away from who we are as opposed to the uh, it take, and, and it keeps on just putting this premium on, on what we are uh-huh. as I keep on hearing that V word veganism to me has now become political it's, a, it's political to be vegan in the same way that I characterise to answer your first question and what I'm really going to talk about here is the political idea of being black because when people hear me say that like I don't identify as black it becomes very problematic for people straight away because they don't understand what I mean but what I like to explain to people is I'm not like OJ Simpson I'm not here going like you know I'm not black I'm Jay Brave I'm here saying to you like I, I choose to not identify as black, although I acknowledge the fact that I live the black experience. Because what we share, people of the African diaspora uh, around the world, we share a black experience because that is a diametric relationship that we uh, uh, which relates to how we are treated in this society. It does not necessarily mean in any way, shape or form that my identity has to be framed from the behavior of how I'm treated by other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
when you listen and find out in a lot of different African languages, there is no word to describe each other as black. Because again, when you're on the continent with each other, long before like colonial powers and people come along, uh-huh. there is no need to describe that where there is no difference right. with, with everybody. The, 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 the difference has come in the in the more recent times as people have kind of melded in the beginning of globalization like up to six seven hundred years ago when the colonial powers started traveling the world and diametric relationships were created because people were now othered because these people hadn't seen each other for so long right our brothers and sisters who'd been apart for so long but in the creation of these political identities of, of black and white was also created a diametric relationship of power which is inescapable like as long as uh, as long as I am black and you, like you know, hypothetically in this conversation, are white, uh-huh. all of the power that is invested in white, in lightness, in in uh, in in all of the the, the connotations of those uh, adjectives and words, even as they pertain to religious text, and out of the darkness and into the light, what you begin to recognise is that as long as we have religion underpinning our societies. Mm. The, the ideas of black and white will always be political ideas which empower one group of people yes. and disempower another forever. Forever. There is, there is, there is, there is no black power because you, it's still an owned position. You were still created black mm. by European people who have mm. also labelled themselves white. I don't call, like, you know, I do not empower people by calling them white people. Like, they're from where they're from. You're a Polish guy. You're an English guy. You're not a, a homogenized, powerful group. Like that is that is a fake power which is created and 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 empowered further with words by the fact that people keep on uttering these words, white supremacy. You keep on giving supremacy to this idea of whiteness, and I refuse to do that. Like it is, it is. I, I I'm I'm not buying that. What we should have is ethnic identity uh, and agency that comes from it because what comes with ethnic identity and agency is knowledge of self knowledge of history individuality and, and from and, and from that exactly and from that uh, like a place to a place to move forward to right so so that's an interesting point so when it comes to identity um there are different ways of coming at it. And there's the kind of, like you say, there's the cultural conditioning that's given to you as a child, as you kind of, you know, mature through your culture. But then there's the ethnic identity, which, um, is where, you know, where your, your roots are and you're, where you're from, your kind of, your cultural heritage, whether it's Spanish, Italian, you know, um, Jamaican, um, Ghanaian, you know, you have a, a rich and beautiful culture of your home. Um, but then there's this homogenized black, white, Asian um, uh, taxonomy that's given to people. And it's so blunt and so, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, again, I mean, Primitive. I just want to say as well that the conflation of like Asian is still a recognition of a landmass. I mean, if we were if we referred to as African, Caucasian, and Asian, I could even get more on board of that because it still relates to landmass. Right, gotcha. But what black, black and white will never relate to landmass. I see what you mean. Like, what what is black and white is your TV when it's off is black. Your your fridge in your kitchen is white. You are not white, and I am not black. They are political identity only. It, it, it became inappropriate to refer to Chinese people as yellow a long time ago. And right. if you were to imagine like, uh, like gotcha. an evening standard running a, a, a front cover where they may have said like, 
black youths on the streets of London. Now, imagine that said yellow youths on the streets of London. Can you imagine mm. the horror, even from people who are calling themselves black and white? Because you'd be like, you can't say that. But why can we be colours? But but other people can't because right. this whole idea of colour is so outdated. But we have brought it forward because it maintains a power dynamic. I see. So so the problem with it describing people in this way is that it really limits people. It kind of what it does is it it kind of it degrades people down to a simple word and creates a whole bunch of expectations around them as an individual. So, exactly. you know, you're not a noun. right. So, you know, you're just, you're just a color. That's, that's what you are. And that's how people will judge you. I am born in Africa. Uh, my, fa- my father's family, um, are escaped to Southern Africa as French Huguenots persecution uh, from the Catholics. Um, my father's family were kind of heavily, you know, persecuted and kind of driven out of France and they escaped on boats into Africa. And my, that's how my father's family ended up in Africa. So I, my father's family have been there a long, long time. So I identify as an African man, but my skin is white. So I don't get to describe myself as African. I had a, a recent experience where one of my friends, um, said he had seen my black friends, um, had seen, um, see, this is what, this is when you describe someone, I say one of my black friends, what would be, how would you, cause this is where the the trouble with words come in. How do you, if I say one of my African friends, but he wasn't born in Africa, he's from British in Britain. So would I say one of my British friends, this is where the language, <laughs> this is what I mean, but this is, but I'm, I, I, and a group of different gentlemen that I work with, like, uh, from organizations like black of respect and we are race, we are working like hard to like, I mean, because there is language prepared, like, you know, to replace these terms. I mean, your friend there that you're talking about, there are a number of ways you can describe it. It could be you know, my British African friend, because I mean, because again, you don't want to also, another thing that I am also aware of is people often think that it is appropriate to then silence the inverted commas white part of, of their, of their existence. And I'm like, no, in my description, if someone asked me about my heritage, I would say that I'm British African Caribbean mm-hmm. because that in, in t- it involves every part of my journey. I am very British. Anyone who's listening to me and talking to me would go listening to you. You're very much acculturated in this country. And I'm like, sure I am, but it doesn't mean in any way that I deny, uh, I don't, I, 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 yeah, I do not deny that. I do not claim to be like, I am like, you know, I, I'm pan African and I'm only African. I've not I even like, you know, spent any time in, in sub-Saharan Africa in my life. All I know is I have a calling. I know that my ancestry comes from there. Uh, and I, and I, and I understand that. And it's just about ways of like conferring that idea. I mean, I love the fact that you shared the story of your, in essence, your, your family's refugee story from like what would have been in essence, like medieval Europe virtually to into Africa and then the development from there. It's something that I believe you, you, you do have the right. I mean, as everyone on planet earth has the right to claim to be, uh, African, because we are all out of Africa, right? right uh, we all share that one mother from Ethiopia, and then our journeys have only like moved on since then. Now, again, I know that we're getting there into kind of like nuanced gaslighting styles of, of, of <laughs> argument when you, when you do that. Like, well, we're all from here, we're all from there. But in many ways, I believe it to be true. And I believe that an interview I had on the BBC on my show about race and ethnicity with Bristolian poet like Lawrence Hu, where when I asked him, where are you from? He said, anybody who says anything different than the land is hubris. Well, that, even exactly. And this is, takes us back to kind of speciesism and, and being an earthling. We live on a tiny speck of dust floating in 
what might be an empty and lonely universe, who knows, but ultimately each of us are earthlings, every animal, every man, every dog, every cat, every cow, every pig, every chicken, precious, precious gifts of the universe, precious fragments of sentience and consciousness. And, you know, going back to the idea that when you come into this world of veganism, it's not just about animals, it's about realizing how important it is to be alive and how precious it is to be alive and that all people and all animals are to be loved and respected and deserve and have a right to be free of oppression and um, violence and, you know, and just to be able to experience life without any of that stuff. And that's ultimately what I think this kind of thinking I personally would like it, would love and want to be a part of evolving it into. So it intersects and interconnects with everything that we are trying to kind of shift humanity away from, you know, that kind of born out of that ego, that, that desire to be better than everyone else or stronger or richer or etc. So the thing is, all of that is born of like uh, a la lack of confidence and self-esteem. And the funny thing is, is that even the people that we look at around us in this society who apparently have like, you know, the, the dream uh, social media accounts, the dream bodies, the dream cars, houses, whatever it is that people aspire to. In essence, the reason why they even have those things and are showing them to you through those mediums is because that they are seeking like uh, validation on their esteem as well and so everybody is in this kind of uh, I mean I actually wrote an essay about it called National Insecurity uh, a, a long time ago that everybody is kind of like in this perpetual will it kind of builds on the work Alan de Botton wrote in Status Anxiety which is that people are just so keen to appear a certain way in the eyes of their peers now at the moment I mean it seems so easy but if there's one thing of all of the like, inspirational quotes that people follow and look at that you could that if people could really just get a grip of is just that and I mean again in the in the best possible sense of, of this saying nobody else matters <laughs> like obviously as people yeah sure we matter everybody you know in the sense of nobody else's opinion matters sorry is what yeah, there's a similar one that I always think about when, when, when people upset me. What other people think of us has nothing to do with us. Um, and ultimately, if we can live our lives and live our truths and just focus on what matters to us and, and not get bogged down with the opinions and views and criticism of others, obviously, you know, if you trust someone and you care about them and they offer you some courteous criticism, you know, you might like to listen, but ultimately we live in a world where, we, like you say, we live in this Snapchat, Instagram culture, especially, you know, in, in, in the UK and in, across Europe and the US where, you know, our culture has just become all about seeking the approval of others, as you say, and it's kind of becoming quite, it distorts people a little bit. It distorts. Not, um, not a little bit. Uh, well, make, a lot, a lot. I think it takes most people off of their, off of their, their, their life's path of the, what it is that was maybe their destiny. Or, I mean, whether or not people believe in that, but whatever it was that they probably, the creative endeavor that they were here to do on earth. I wonder how many people ever make it there because along the path, they become so distracted by trying to meet other people's yardsticks and loopholes. And I mean, I, again, I can characterize recently, I've been writing a lot of pieces uh, for different people, publications, but I've been getting a lot of, I've been getting feedback from some people that the way that I write and talk is too posh or it's too, it's too well-spoken. It's the, your words are, 
There's too many words with over, with over three syllables. I mean, again, listen to me stumbling my sentences out here. I can hardly believe that people think that, but, like, but apparent, apparently so. And the thing is, it actually started to have me a little worried. I started to think to myself, like, oh my god, am I am I really like you know? Uh, do I do I lack communication skills? Do people not understand like what I'm saying? Am I not? And I started to then like yeah, question my my content when in essence what people were giving me a hard time over was my form not the content but the form but but in me to receiving critique of my form it made me worry about my content uh, and it made I, I kind of I had to go and talk to a friend who luckily like I mean is in that world someone who is like you know uh, an author and somebody who like you know was like that'd be ridiculous how can words be bad how can how can your personal use of words like you know in in the creation of your own art like how can you um, that take the criticism of your form and take that to heart when people didn't critique your content like that's like someone saying to you i love your painting but i don't like your the brushes or the canvas that you use like that that critique's not of you <laughs> that that's of the english language um that's so and, true. And so again, i never even i hadn't even thought of it like you know like that sometimes when people like yeah like give you a hard time you feel the need to kind of like duck and dive one way or the other yeah the point i was gonna make was that with vegan shut up when i put the song out a lot of people characterize me as only a rapper and people try to talk to me like people and people like people again even from like you know a professional world people who could like you know go on linkedin and like you know you can like see that like you know i'm i'm, I'm not like a 19 year old like rapper like i'm i'm like a 36 year old like you know like multi-times director award-winning like writer broadcaster but i was able to put together a rap but for people to then believe that it was appropriate to talk to me in like i suppose street idioms people from professional organizations go in emails going like yo jay and i'm like would what would would you yo anybody else would you uh, and and so it makes you think like, i live in this weird suspended animation of i'm either like you know i'm either ghettoized from below or i'm admonished from above for being too well spoken and it's like well, if i was to choose to like you know try and like like heed the beck and call of the people who say you're too posh or the people who try to then dumb you down i would just be yeah, in the middle just like you know in some kind of like schizophrenic mess and so all i can do is ignore what everybody else says create my own content and work and keep on putting it out there and like i told people as well when they're like oh well who's your audience who's your audience i'm like I don't do it for my audience. I do it for my catharsis. I do it for me. I do it to help myself. I do it so that in the long run, my children, my first child due this year, by the way, but my my child and the children that I have, the children that will be in my sphere of influence, they will learn from me the way that I learned from my mum, who learned from her mum. And what I know about generational knowledge, it is real generational wealth. Mm. That every single time that you pass it down, it matriculates and it becomes stronger and more mm. powerful each time. And so, as much as the outside world may want to critique me for how I come across, I know that in my child and in the future that the assets like you know and these gems of knowledge that i've taken the time to percolate and create and put together mm. that they will be appreciated by people who uh recognize like you know my voice as like you know a legitimate medium jay thank you so much for being on the pbn podcast that's uh, all we've got time for but it's been a real pleasure and uh i'm looking forward to continue our conversation in the real world 
Thank you very much. I would also just lastly then, I just want to say to everybody, yeah, if you want to find me, I'm at Jay Brett, also media. There's a similar tone to all of my messaging across all of my platforms to what you may have heard in this podcast. So if you want to hear more, find out more, come check me out. Amazing. Thank you so much. And I'll speak to you all soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PVN Podcast. There's no wasted, we don't slay. Plants are the best, not being cocky. I've got a cup of fresh made coffee. I've got friends, I think we should copy. What's their life is still my hobby. Zero waste, athlete body. They get better while the world gets sloppy. And yeah, I mean it, not getting sloppy. Better believe it, start getting worried. If you got an MSC, bring it out. Nutritionists wanna jump and shout. You gotta eat meat, but ignoring the gout. Stay in your seat, fam, please shut your mouth. But you see my man over there with the sprouts? He'll make a juice for you to try out. All of my man, them don't eat foul. Might eat my girl, but we don't eat out. Now all these men Make me pout Chips and sand is my only out Roll in, look, then roll out I'm so London, I'm so south Food of my friends when we ain't got now Need to talk, what's this all about? But we wanna make the world so proud Like reclaim land, have a friend that's a cow All of these flat seeds fall in a jar Higher than me, these are better by far Had to bear change, so I bought new plants Cold pressed juice that I bought for my ma When I cook food, it's a